before we get cracking on Jill Madison's podcast, what I wanted to share with you or talk to you about was the Unleashed Online Conference that myself and Hubert are heavily involved with and we're organizing. So I'll give you a bit of a rundown on what it's all about. about. And essentially, over the last eight years, I spent quite a lot of my time developing clinical resources, thinking that the more that I empowered the veterinarians that I was mentoring with clinical knowledge, the better able and equipped they were to cope with um, the stresses of being an emergency veterinarian. But the issue we found was that for some veterinarians, no matter how much clinical knowledge that I imparted across, there was still this level of underlying um, doubt, um, anxiety, um, just some kind of barrier that they were trying to overcome. And I felt like as if I wasn't providing the, the, the information that they needed in a clinical aspect. And that's where I realized that actually clinical knowledge plus something else is what actually results in success. So what I've done is I've gathered seven of my best friends who have succeeded in different aspects of their careers and, and got them together in a online conference format so they can share what they've learned. Anthony is a behavior expert and expert speaker, and he's going to talk about confidence and confidence in the way that you communicate, which is an incredible skill and also incredibly important in the consult room. Shibley is going to talk about self-awareness and how that plays an important role in the way that you communicate and also talks about wealth and how to demonstrate value to clients. Brooke is going to talk about social media, specifically on Instagram, and how she used that to share her message and have impact with her audience, and also how to deal with failure and imposter syndrome. Hubert's going to talk about the golden nuggets from the Vet Vault, so the key things that the, the mentors that we've got on the Vet Vault have shared, and also uh, an aspect on personality. What is your social style and how the social style impacts the way that you communicate and consults and how you can leverage and flex your style? This is an incredibly important skill to understand and can have dramatic impacts on the way that you interact with clients and fellow team members. Alex is going to talk about the elusive work-life balance and then also how she connects in the consult room. So she'll share her secrets on how she connects in the consult room. I'm going to talk about clarity and trying to find clarity in where you're heading over the next two, three, four, five years. Because if you know where you're heading, then you can make a plan for that. And then once we understand that, we're going to set you down the right pathway. The Dean's going to talk about resilience because we need you guys to swing back and bounce back from adversity. And then Sarah's going to talk about supercharging your impact and influence. So everyone wants to have an impact. You may not realize the impact you want to have, but we're going to discover that. And then how do we get that and maximize your impact on yourself your local um, team, so your team within your hospital and also your wider community and beyond. So in the show notes will be a link or if you go to our Instagrams, you'll find that there will be a link there for the Unleashed Online Conference and on the website, you'll find the speaker pack, but also the tickets which are now available. Are you ready to rock and roll? Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is Gerardo Polly. And this, oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. Okay. <laughs> One of the best bits of advice I've ever received was to find good mentors and to learn from them. 
trusted people who have already done what you're trying to do now. I've been fortunate throughout my career to have some fantastic mentors to help guide me, but I realize that they'd be hard to find and also hard to commit the time to one. This is why we've gathered some of the best minds from the veterinary world and squeezed them for their wisdom so that you don't have to learn the hard way. With the help of our guests, we flip the veterinary profession on its back and explore its soft underbelly to find the tips, tools, and inspiration that you'll need to build the career that you've always wanted. I'm Gerardo Poli. I'm Hubert Hemstra, and this is The Vet Vault. If you don't know who Jill Madison is, then you're missing out, but that's okay because we'll fill you in in this podcast. Jill is currently Professor of General Practice Director of Professional Development and Director of the Bachelor of Veterinary Medicine course at the Royal Veterinary College in the United Kingdom. She is actively involved in undergraduate teaching and continuing professional development at the Royal Veterinary College in the areas of small animal medicine, clinical problem solving, and clinical pharmacology. She has lectured extensively around the world on clinical problem solving, small animal internal medicine, and clinical pharmacology. If you've ever listened to one of her lectures, You'll know that she is the epitome of clear-minded scientific thinking. And if you haven't had the privilege of hearing her speak, well, luckily, she has a book just for you. Jill is senior editor of a book called Clinical Reasoning in Small Animal Practice, which is the best guide to clear thinking about small animal medicine that you are likely to ever read. She's also published over 60 refereed papers in veterinary and medical journals and is the senior editor of a previous book, Small Animal Clinical Pharmacology. To keep in touch with the realities of private general practice, she consults at a local veterinary practice at the RVC's first opinion practice, the Beaumont Sainsbury Animal Hospital. In this episode, we talk about clinical vet work for a change. Jill talks about some common mistakes that many vets make when it comes to clinical decision-making and why curiosity and thinking skills are more important than knowledge of the facts. Jill gives her insights about the value of internships and tells us what her favorite textbooks are for everyday practice. Please enjoy the queen of veterinary small animal medicine, Professor Jill Madison. So Jill, I've, I've seen over the past 10 years or so since moving to Australia, I've, I've actually seen you speak at a, at a couple of congresses. Um, I was much, oh, yeah. <laughs> much impressed. Um, it's always a sense of absolute confidence and, and certainty with what you're saying I've, I've actually joked with colleagues before if, you, if you're having a clinical clinical disagreement uh, if somebody says yes but Jill Madison says this that that ends the conversation <laughs> there's no comeback from from that one so, so I must I must admit when Gerardo said we, we've got an interview lined up with you I was a little bit intimidated uh, felt like I was interviewing veterinary vet, vet, veterinary royalty um, but then I then I googled you a little bit and um, and what you've written and what you've done over the years. And I realized it's not, it's not veterinary royalty. It's more like a veterinary superhero. So my first question is, were, were you born a superhero, like, like Superman? Or, or, or did it happen later in life, more like Spider-Man with a, like with a radioactive spider bites or something? I know you're not supposed to say that as a female. I've always been very bossy, so. I was I was school captain at my primary school and at my senior school, so I suppose that means I don't know. So so were you so were you were you always a, a very committed 
driven driven sort of a person or is it did, did, is it something that happened as you as you developed in life no i think i was probably fairly committed and driven yeah um i don't know i don't know what by um they, they talk about some things um and people as they progress through their careers and they you know they they a lot of successful people, they have this bias and they call the bias for action. Do you feel that like, as you were going through high school, as you're going through university, like you saw things and you wanted to contribute, so you took action as opposed to the kind of person who would just see things and then let other people do? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so I always got involved with things, um, you know, so, well, being class captain, being school captain, being on the... SU, the student, you know, council for school. Although that that experience put me off any involvement in any university politics, because it was I can't even remember what the details are now, but it was fairly some fairly sort of difficult things happened, and I thought I don't want to get involved again. Although I think I was I think I was one of my year reps um, at university, but then being involved with associations, so getting involved with the the ASAVA was my first step because I remember being in Perth um, at an ASAVA conference years ago, mm. going just as a delegate and and seeing the committee and stuff. And I thought I really like I really like what they're doing and I like what they're doing for swine or practice, which the ABA wasn't doing um, at that stage. And and I thought I'd really like to be part of that. So that's where it kind of that's where I did a lot of my leadership development was through initially through the ASAVA, a lot through the ASAVA um, for years, um, but I was also on the ABA board. Um, yeah, so I guess I just, I, I'm not one of those people who moans about something and then doesn't do anything about it. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, um, and, and just to recap, you, you studied vet in Sydney, is that correct? Yes. Where, yeah. where did you grow up? Where are you from? Sydney. Are you from Sydney? Sydney. And yeah. and then how did how did vet happen back back then? Why 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 vet? How did how did how did the journey happen? So I um, always liked animals, liked riding. So um, I, I didn't start vet. I started animal behaviour or behavioural science at Macquarie. Mm -hmm. And um, my father was a doctor, and I knew I didn't want to do medicine for whatever reason. But I think he psychiatrist I kind of went to the behavioral side of it and then when I was at Macquarie it was okay but this was this will sound really arrogant but there was one um, assignment that I did when you know I was not at all on top of my game in fact it was probably well affected by all sorts of things at the time um, and it got this amazing mark and I thought to myself this isn't I need to be more challenged than this this is this is too not too easy. It was yeah. just, but I, I need more challenge than this. And then I honestly can't remember. I then applied for vet, but I literally cannot remember what the thought process was. I know my father got me to meet with a friend of his who was a professor of anatomy, veterinary anatomy, Rex Butterfield, who's this just wonderful man. And the idea was that I would have lunch with Rex and Rex would talk me out of being a vet, which of course didn't work because Rex was a passionate, passionate vet. So, um, yeah, so that's that's how I got into vet, but I went into it thinking, having no experience of vet whatsoever. I think I've been to the vet once. Yeah. Um, 
thinking I was going to be an equine vet, that it was sort of all about horses, which didn't work out that way, but yeah. Did you go into horse practice or something? Or? No, 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 no. I started vet and that was kind of why I thought I was doing it. And then about in third year, I got really sort of enthused about native wildlife and went tagging kangaroos out at Tibaburra. Um, <laughs> and then, but as soon as I walked into the swine clinic at Sydney and discovered medicine mm. and probably started lectures in medicine, then that was it. That was, that's what I wanted to do. So then I had a very focused for quite some time that what I wanted to be was an academic small animal clinician, medicine clinician. Was that from a, a like a like a, a love of knowledge and a love of learning or I don't know, just I mean it just it just clicked for me. You know, surgery didn't click for me at all. Um, and I hated anatomy and I could never remember anything. And then the medicine stuff, I just it just clicked and I liked it and it made sense. And um, I didn't have to really study it very hard because I just remembered it. I really, and, I, and then I really liked in final year because we had we had two clinical years. In final year, I really liked um, I really liked um, dairy dairy practice because it was so it was scientific and evidence based, and you know, it, it, whereas I didn't like equine practice, which was sort of more kind of fire engine stuff and things like that. I didn't really go off equine practice. It was because I didn't really know anything about it. I mean, I did EMS or, you know, sort of yeah. practice and it was fine. I had a, I had a fine time, but I, I wanted the evidence base and the problem solving and the, and we had very good mentors and I had very good mentors in swine medicine. So. Yeah. I understand what you're saying about kind of just things just make sense. Sometimes when you, when you get down enough and you know enough about the underlying disease process, then the management makes sense. Yeah, yeah. If the, you, you know, I keep saying to everybody, you know, if you know your path of fears, then you can work most things out. And that's what I quite liked. And I, and I just, I think I was mentored really well and had, had really sort of good mentors who were inspiring and were, um, they were teaching medicine in a way that was different from anywhere else. Well, I now realise different from anywhere else, and it just it just worked for me. So, um, so this was at, at, at Sydney while while you were doing your your degree. Yeah, okay. yeah. yeah, different in a way because it was has that sort of shaped the way because you, you were involved clinical reasoning. Was it was it delivered in a way back then that yeah. was problem based or yeah? So so when I was when I was in fourth year, um, one of my mentors. Brian Farrow, he had been doing a sabbatical and he had worked with Sandy Della Hunter, who was teaching neurology from a very logical, neuroanatomical but makes sense type way. And he came back and said to the other medicine, because you know, there are only two medicine lectures in those days, um, uh, to the other medicine lecture, um, David Watson, there must be a way that we can use this kind of approach in other body systems. And David said, yep. And so David taught particularly GI, particularly GI, um, from a problem-based way, which was the start of what... And so then I, I was taught that way as a student. I then, because I did an internship there, it was reinforced. And when I did my residency, I reinforced it and it just evolved over time. Um, to be more explicit and I think a little bit more practical because I think um, David was wonderful 
in in what he knew, but he was very detailed and he he tended to make it a little bit inaccessible that you in sort of general practice it was a bit too very detailed and a bit too you need to know all of these differentials for the problems and so put people off. Mm -hmm. So I guess what I did was manage to move it into something that was a bit more accessible and usable and and you could do. But that you know they very much you know mentored me that you if you're understanding pathophys then you're going to it makes everything a whole lot easier. I mean, pathophys, um, I, like I'm not a specialist, but I'm one of my members and I did my masters, and a lot of it was, was pathophys. And when you go through it at the start, if you don't really appreciate how important it is to understand, you know, how disease occurs, um, you kind of get lost into mm. into why you treat. You, just, you can learn treatment pathways and yeah. just di and, and diagnostic pathways, treatment pathways, but then if you don't really understand why you're doing those things, it doesn't really complete the circle yeah you don't remember yeah. it it just, it just you don't remember it and it's sort of whereas if you know you know i mean i remember when i was studying for my um fellowship and i thought well i just went a bit of a study plan here and i thought well what i'll do is i'll start with the body system i like the least which was cardiovascular <laughs> and then so i studied that and thought right well i need to do pathophys for it and i thought oh yeah this makes sense you know it's really yeah mm. okay, that's what you why you do that and that's why you do that and that's why you do that you know this is what the body's trying to do silly old body it's doing the wrong thing um you know you're trying to sort of stop this this and this and then it sort of made a whole lot of sense so so you went from from uni straight into an internship at sydney is that, is that correct or yes i did i did an internship the first year i was out i did a locum in darwin for three or four weeks mm -hmm. to earn some money mm -hmm. um and then i did an internship at Sydney for a year, yeah. the rotating internship through the different disciplines, and then I was in practice in Sydney for eighteen months, okay. and then I went to my residence in well. Which is Canada. You went to Canada. Yeah, I went to Canada. Yeah. Canada. Okay, cool. Um, that's that's quite a journey, and then back to Australia again, and then and then to the UK after that. Does that am I following the well, story correctly? Yeah, I came back to Australia. To, I was thinking about doing my PhD in the States um, and I was going to do, I was thinking about doing a combined clean path residency and PhD at Davis and then I decided that I really wanted to, I didn't want to be an expat, which is very ironic because I'm an expat now, but at the time I didn't want to be an expat. So I thought, and it, was, it was really hard to get academic jobs in Australia, but I thought, oh, well, I'll just go back. I know I have to do a PhD to get one. Yeah. So... I did a PhD because it was, to me, it was a step to getting an academic job. And so I thought, I'll do it back in Australia. Yeah. Um, and so that's when I went back and then was there, I guess, um, well, I went back in 84, 83, 84, beginning of 84, end of 83, and uh, then did my PhD and then sort of had various positions there and then ended up here, but that's a whole another Story. What you mentioned there when, when you were discussing was a pretty long process, and like, was that like, did you have an endpoint in mind? Was that what you want? You wanted you, you talked about you wanted to be uh, an, an academic in, in medicine, um, and maybe that's similar to, to what students are like. They want to be a veterinarian, but then when they're in there and immersed in it, it's almost like they're at the foothill of Mount Everest, and it's too hard to get to and like that, that whole looking up can be so overwhelming like how, how did you tackle that because that's that's years of, of process there yeah, yeah I mean, 
well, first of all, you have to accept it as you get. Like people who say, um, I really want to be a specialist, but I don't have the time or whatever, then they don't really want to be a specialist. Mm-hmm. Or they get it. Um, it doesn't, you know, it's the same today. It's the, it's the same process. I think what's interesting is that that's what drove me. And yet if I look back at my career, I've only actually spent three to four years as a full-time academic clinician in a specialty hospital because because what I realised was it it kind of in a way wasn't wasn't enough in lots of ways. I don't know, it's sort of I just got to the point of saying, you know, maybe it, you know, it was 100% clinical commitment and you weren't given time off clinics. Um, it was, you, I don't know, when I think about the sort of decisions I made, I'm not exactly sure that they were really thought out, but except that my passion is still academic medicine and I love medicine, but now I like to translate it, I guess, more. I'm much more interested in translating it and making it accessible in general practice than I am in the fancy stuff that happens. I used to, you know, I used to love the fancy stuff that happened, but I was always much more interested in the problem solving, the diagnostic dilemma, not the treatment dilemma. Mm. I'd lose interest once I'd made the diagnosis. I love that what, what I can do in the first 12 hours, yeah. but then someone else can. Exactly. Yes. Yes. That's exactly how I feel about it. I, as you say, yeah. it's, it's like a mystery that you get to solve. And once you've yeah. solved it, you go, okay, now it's boring. Now bugger off. Exactly. <laughs> go see somebody else. Okay. Uh, yeah. do, you, do you think that maybe, um, and maybe this is the reason why where you're at now, it's you have a big impact for that one patient um, and that's exciting, but then maybe the biggest impact you can have now is actually helping people, helping students process. And you know, like if you can do that for... 300 students a year, but through resources, do that for thousands of students a year um, in, a, in, a, in a systematic kind of manner, which helps break down the challenges that are, that are faced with, with diagnosing disease and, and, and fast-tracking that process for them. Mm. Is, is, is that now? Yeah, I mean, I think that the, the teaching thing came um, because when, so I really, I always really enjoyed working with students in the clinic. So when I was a resident, I really enjoyed it. I think I probably recognised that the way I thought, which is the way I'd been taught the problem-solving stuff, worked really well as a scaffold for teaching. But where it started really was through the um, what was called then the Postgraduate Foundation is now called the Centre for Veterinary Education mm-hmm. in Sydney. And so when, when they started their distance education program, um, Doug Bryden asked me to do one on problem solving. So I've been doing that for a very long time. And that's where, through all sorts of all sorts of reasons and roots, it really got honed because I had to create this course, which is a distance education course running over a whole year with lots of resources. No online at then, you know, wow. this is 25 years ago. Um, Doug had this sort of vision. So it was very new, so no one was really doing it. And he had this vision that um, the tutors needed real educational support to be able to change what they were doing because it's one thing to stand up with a lecture, but now you've got all this material that someone's going to be reading and how to make it engaging. So he, um, in 
engaged as a consultant, um, a woman called Julia Atkin, who was, her area is education. She was married to a vet, which was kind of serendipitous, um, but her area was education, particularly in primary school stuff. And we worked with her for years and she was my greatest learning mentor. And because the way she had, she'd done her PhD on different ways that students learnt chemistry, you know, from a, essentially from a problem solving version versus a traditional version. So what I was doing with my course, she really got. And so we worked really well together. I mean, she was amazing for everybody, actually, everyone, all of the tutors and as the program got bigger. So, but that's where I got, well, I got a number of things. One was I got um, amazing education training, which I had got nothing at Sydney as a lecturer. Um, the second was that it absolutely, totally reinforced to me how needed it was and how valuable it was and what a change it could make for people. So when I did it, I can remember the very first year I did it, and I had put it all together and I was convinced that it needed to be this problem-based approach to the clinical signs and that the knowledge stuff about intricacies of disease was just not part of it really. People could look that up, but this was about structure. And, um, but there were loads of people who didn't agree, thought it's too simple. And, and, um, and so I was, you know, oh yeah, I'm convinced I'm right. And then the first assignment that came in, was from this um, woman in Melbourne and it was brilliant. Like it was, she had written her case assessments and they were absolutely amazing. And I can remember seeing her going, I have got this completely wrong. I have got this completely wrong. People don't need me at all. Anyway, she was the best I've ever had. So <laughs> <laughs> and after that it became very apparent that um, it was needed. So, and so the years of doing that, absolutely convinced me and as the course was always sold out and there was my waiting list and people committed all of this money to do it a huge amount of time and effort and what got out of it and you know people would tell me that i had you know the course had saved them from leaving practice and that sort of thing so i became i was so convinced it was right that that sort of drove me forward but that's where i that's where it got really honed and it also became what I call my virtual practice because um, the participants, not all of them, but most of them will write up cases and I can use them and I know they've been solved in general practice. So in my teaching, I can give a case and say, this has been solved in general practice. It hasn't been solved in a referral centre. It's been solved in general practice. Mm -hmm. So you can do, wow. you know, you can do so it's sort of, um, yeah. So so is, there, is all of this culminated in, in your book um, in the clinic, clinical reasoning in small animal practice, is in that book, is that an yeah. encapsulation of, of everything we're talking about here? Yeah, I mean, so what it sort of, so essentially that book, some additions from some other contributors and areas that I'm not, you know, as strong about, mm. but that book came out of the notes that I wrote and still write for the education course. So it's a distillation of. The, the distance education course actually has more copious notes and more things about treatment and drugs and things like that. Yeah. But it's a distillation of that's where it came from. So it's a bit like the therapeutics book I've got. So um, clinical pharmacology, small clinical pharmacology, which is my other book. That came from the notes I wrote 
um, for the students at Sydney when I became a lecturer and then senior lecturer in clinical pharmacology. Mm -hmm. So I, I wrote all these lecture notes and mm -hmm. used them when I gave lectures and I went, oh, well, I might as well put them together. And I think it started, I did a little book for the CVE um, therapeutic update or something in one of their little books that they used to do. Mm -hmm. And so it developed from that too. Oh, I remember those, 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 little, no, those little things used to come out in a little... Yeah, I don't think they do them anymore. They've got big proceedings, but I don't think they do those updates. Yeah, I, I saw a whole library of them um, when I was at uni. And I was just yeah. like, oh, yeah, they've yeah. got, yeah, yeah. That's, that's all of the proceedings yeah. from their courses and things. So, but, yeah. um, but there are also some updates as well. Well, no, like I can, I can see now like a, a lot of where the, the underlying drive comes from, where your focus is now. So, yeah, I suppose it, 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 because I was doing it so much with vets, be it face-to-face -face or um, distance education, but it's been, it's been a really slow burn in lots of ways because there are not so much now. My, my analogy is that the more sophisticated the society is about swine or practice, the more they actually recognise that the thinking skills are needed. The harder sell is to sell this, not necessarily into other, because there are some, for example, Asian countries I work with where there'll be really visionary people in their associations who get the fact that there's no point teaching people about ultrasound if they don't know how to think about a woman dog. But there are lots of other areas of the world where what they want is they just want to hear about you know, really fancy stuff, and that's what they see as CPD. So mm. um, it's that, it's really, it's it's interesting because it's now, it's really only now in the last few years that the dialogue around veterinary practice has really shifted to say, this isn't about what you know, it's about what you do with it and how you apply it. And so your clinical decision-making and your professional decision-making, which is, Another thing we focus on a lot at RBC, and I've got, you know, it's taught by Liz Chan and, and, and her team. You know, that's now become accepted that this is what's needed, whereas before it was just all about, you just got to know facts, 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 and we'll mm. work it out somehow in the end. But having to do an hour on Sunday, trying to get that across to half, in half an hour on Sunday was absolutely impossible. I mean, that's just, so I had to give a lecture on Sunday, but doing it in half an hour is impossible. Like just yeah. yeah, we we and Gerardo were talking earlier about talking about this and, and the contents of that course. I listened to the to the podcast the other day that, that you did um on, on, on your on your book. Um but there's too much to try and talk about in, in one little podcast as, as one of the, the topics. I'd love to I'd love to encapsulate it for people, but I suppose they you just need to read the book, get the book and read it uh, to, to get to the facts. I, what I what I want to ask, and I don't know if that's just a sneaky way of asking the same question, but are there the flip side of what you say how you should do it? What are the most common mistakes that you see students and and experienced vets make? when it comes to clinical reasoning? Um, well, I think, I, think, I think when you don't have a structure to grab when you need it, because I'm not saying you need it all the time, mm. but to know how to grab it when you need it, is so the, so the mistakes that I see, either through referrals or second opinions that I see or through stuff I've marked through vets, mm -hmm. um, 
students are a little bit different because in one way they, they haven't developed bad habits. You've just got to start to sort of get them trained up, but then how, what, so they're the problems that they're grasping or struggling with can often be dissimilar. So, um, one of the things I do in my online course, which is running at the moment, is I ask um, the vets, you know, what is it they find frustrating about, about difficult medical cases? And it's very consistent. It's, you know, not being able to see the wood for the trees, not knowing what's important. Um, I think probably at least a proportion of cases that you see as second opinions that have gone wrong. Mm -hmm. Usually they haven't defined the problem properly or they've overlooked something. Um, being having what we call confirmation bias, really committed to I think it's this and only looking for the information that supports that yeah. and not looking for information that refutes it. Uh -huh. um, one of the things I think is, is surprisingly common is a lack of curiosity to find out stuff. You know, it's sort of um, this idea that you should be relying on your memory even though, you know, unless you're a medicine specialist, you shouldn't be walking around knowing every cause of hypercalcemia. But mm -hmm. so many vets don't, they either don't have the resources there or they don't even Google properly. You know, I constantly, and maybe it's because I did a PhD in the old days where there was no online stuff and you had to go into index veterinarians and you had to go through stuff and you had to frame your question and then you'd find other papers. But I'm constantly amazed by the almost this lack of curiosity to or and to have you know i go into practices where the textbooks that are there are you know 20 years old they're what they had at vet school mm. and nothing there's still nothing that replaces i'm sorry there is still nothing that replaces easily having a nelson and kuta or edinger on your shelf there just isn't you know you can google some stuff and you can google mm. quick questions and you can but I still think having, and I just always amaze. And they go, you know, they'll quote me a book, and I go, but that's that's twenty years old. That's what you had at vet school. Don't you think something's changed? And this idea that I don't know that they don't invest in it. So yes, yeah, so I think falling into traps, falling into traps, being convinced about something, um, not defining the problem well in the first place, getting very distracted by um, not being able to sort out a problem in a multiple problem case what's important and then here's another of my hobby horses and it's particularly evident in Australia for an interesting reason in that Australia was I think well ahead of the UK and I don't know about the US but I think so in having clinical pathology services with quite comprehensive um, advice at the end of the because I used to work for one in Sydney uh, yeah yeah so DBL what used to be and you know all the rest of it and so they've got good people working for good medicine people you know mm. many of them um not not clinical pathologists medicine people who give advice but what happens then is that then the vets don't look at the numbers and they can't interpret the clinical themselves mm. and so then as sort of time moved on and more and more in-house stuff happens so there's all the issues about how you make sure QA your in-house stuff. But then they seem to lose the ability. They never looked at the numbers. They only ever looked at the comment at the yeah, bottom. Yeah. And and when you lose that ability to be able to assess clean paths, so what I say is that in spinal medicine, the one of the absolute key skills is being able to interpret clinical pathology, you know, not necessarily psychology or hematology, but mm -hmm. biochemistry. And that is um, 
it's absolutely essential. And so there's that. And so the, the common mistakes I see is either ignoring something that's massively changed, but it doesn't kind of fit with what they're thinking, mm. or then telling them that this value that's one point above the reference range mm. must mean this. I had, I had one last night where you said, you know, Gamma GT was 15 and the reference range was 0 to 11, so I had to have cholestasis. Mm. No, it doesn't. You know, so there's a sort of, there's a mixture of things, actually. I don't think there's any one, one thing. And I think for people, the structure helps some of them to, you know, stop those traps, um, to remind them. Um, and the other overarching one is where people really struggle, where I see people really struggle, is because they don't know their physiology. So they can't do their physiology, so then they really struggle with. And so that the area that really challenges everyone particularly is renal. Okay. Okay. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. So if you say de de not defining the problem, do you mean literally listening to the history and then and then barking up the wrong tree? They 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 chasing the the thing that's not important and then they is that can be chasing not important can be you know so I mean the classic example you give is that the owner says it's vomiting but actually it's regurgitating mm. or owner says that it's constipated you know the examples I go in the lecture mm. because it's straining um, so not taking that first step to say yeah. what really problem here. Um, so that's part of it, you know, animals that have bleeding lesions that have been worked up as being a local lesion when in fact they've got a bleeding disorder. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's a defining the system thing. Um, yeah, it's a mixture. It's a mixture. Do, do you think that you, I don't know, I don't know if that even if this is a possible thing to answer, but it, could you give us like a, like a short summary of the process of, of, of Oh, some, some people may not be aware yeah. of problem oriented. Like I was, yes. when I went through uni, and that was part of that process. We developed problems. We tried to define what the most localizing problem was, and whether or not that was a true problem or not. Whether the yeah. systems were involved, and then from there, like what diagnostic tests to consider to to, to investigate that problem, yeah. and then yeah. from there, sort of generate differential summary between all that. Yeah. But is what would like? Could you distill the process down somewhat? Well, I'll tell you what it's not, and I think this probably helps. Um, so what's a very common approach? Because, you know, these days most people know about problem lists, mm. um, although it's surprising when we see, um, when I see people who are reflecting on having done the Certificate of Advanced Retinue Practice, which is kind of like the memberships, mm. um, and they reflect in their part of it on what they've learned. So many will say, you know, I really learned that creating problem lists is really important. Mm. But I think one of the... The really common thing that happens is that the clinician might say to the student, so what's your problem list for this case, which is okay, which is fine. Mm. And then they'll say, and what are your differentials? Mm. And really what that is, is it's pattern recognition. It's saying, what disorders do I know of that will cause this pattern of clinical science? Which is absolutely fine sometimes, mm. lots of times, but other times it's not at all. And so what the problem-based structure is that you ask a couple of really key questions before you get to that differential list. You say, okay, what's the problem list? And on that problem list, what are the important problems that are going to be my diagnostic hook? Mm. I'm going to use diagnostic hook. Um, am I sure I know what those problems is? You know, is it vomiting? Is it regurgitation? Mm. Is it fainting? Is it seizure? You know, all of that sort of stuff. Um, and then usually, sometimes twisting a little bit, 
what systems involved and how. So do I have a structural problem of the body system or do I have something outside that body system where the body system is just the messenger mm. for the clinical sign? Mm. And that's really important because very often structural problems of the body system like the gut or the nervous system or muscles, um, they you have to image them to find out what's going on. Whereas if it's secondary, it tends to be blood tests and all that sort of stuff. And, and you know, and given the fact that the most clin common clinical signs we see in practice of vomiting and diarrhea, it would be the most common in itchy dogs, mm -hmm. um, itchy dogs at cats, then, you know, it's, if you get that right, if you get the vomiting and diarrhea right, you sort of, most of it will flow from that. If you get into your head that just because the other, of course, the other common mistake is you've got the dog that's coughing and has got a heart. Mm -hmm. So instead of saying, um, I've got a dog that's coughing, does that mean it's got primary respiratory disease or secondary? Saying, oh, I've got a dog that's coughing and has got a heart murmur, it must be heart mm -hmm. disease. Um, you know, I've got examples of, uh, let's say, we use this one for student teaching where the cat comes in, it's got a history of recurrent um, gingivastomatitis that responds quite well to steroids normally. The owner usually notices the cat's having a problem because he stops eating and he starts to lose weight. Comes in, gets a shot of steroids, and it's fine. This time comes in, she'd notice he was losing weight, but he was still eating fine. And what the what the um, procedure was that he then had all his teeth taken out. So he comes back having had all his teeth taken out, and the owner says, "Well, you know, his mouth's fine now, but he's still eating and he's still losing weight, and he turns out to have hypothyroidism." So that's sort of not defining the problem at the beginning because the problem at the beginning was weight loss despite a normal appetite, mm. which is very different from weight loss because either can't eat or won't eat. Mm. And I think sometimes one of the, I think with the students sometimes they, I honestly think they sometimes think it can't be this simple. I think they think I'm tricking them, but it's, it has to be more complicated. Yeah. Um, and it, and it really isn't. And yeah, there's going to be cases that don't, it doesn't work for. It's always the way. Yeah. But it works an awful lot of the time. And it takes out, you know, one of the things I'm trying to kind of um, promote at the moment is that given all of the issues around stress of new graduates, that, you know, the, the, the stress that new graduates undergo and their, their challenges with decision-making in practice, you know, some of the stress, yes, there's all sorts of other issues as well, but some of the stress is, is because they they don't have this framework and so they're faced with this, oh my God, I've got to remember all the differentials for this, or I don't know what's mm. going on. What I'm trying to say is if you practice this approach, yeah. it happens really quickly and so you can use the rest of the consult to worry about stuff that's always going to be difficult. And you just got to accept that sometimes it doesn't work. Sometimes they don't follow the rules. You know, sometimes the guidelines you give about whether it's primary or secondary genetic disease. In the course that I'm running at the moment, there was an absolutely classic case of a cat that um, presented and it's been a bit off its food and it started vomiting. And so you really, it was definitely vomiting, you really can't assess whether it's primary or secondary GI disease. They weren't any clues. That was fine. Everyone said, don't know. And it turned out to have, so when they did bloods, it had these massive changes in liver enzymes and really rubles up and blah, 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 and going, okay, fine. <laughs> but it turned out to have a neoplasm in its duodenum that was blocking its bile duct. So it was an example of primary gut disease created secondary yeah, gut disease yeah. changes. Now that's really unusual, yeah. like really unusual. Mm. And 
important not to let a case like that, which you can explain, but a case like that put you off because yeah. that's really unusual. So it sort of sits in that. Yeah, that was that was really good actually. I'm not saying actually like if I didn't. <laughs> it's unexpectedly good, um, right? <laughs> I think you know, like through that, you talked about examples of of, of you know, of clarifying what it is that's important about using the problem um, the problem list and how to use it, the questions to ask, but also you gave us classic examples, great examples of. Of, of how to use that as well mm. so and and, and um, where people get caught up on so uh, that I, that for me kind of summarized things quite nicely i thought that's lovely, that's I lovely. one of the things that i say is if you don't ask the question then how do you know you're going to get the right answer mm. and what i see and i guess when you go back to what you said before you know what common mistakes do you see and i see this a lot in countries where there's small animal um, training has been very, very poor or non-existent. They're trying to learn all this stuff on a very shaky base. Is that? Is that? And this, but this also happens in UK and Australia. Is they're very driven to do something without stopping to think. And when I talk to ECC people like you guys, mm. and you know, in ECC you've got to do things quickly. But what our ECC people say is, look, if it's going to die in the first five minutes, it's going to die anyway. Yeah. So stop thinking you know just a little bit about defining that problem I mean, obviously and sometimes you're moving into your doing your generic i've got to save this animal's life bit mm -hmm. um but while you're thinking about so what really is going on you know what's happening but that that drive to do something without stopping and you know to give drugs to give something but i see that a lot in countries where um the education is really poor, so they're trying, but there's this relationship with the client where the client expects them just to do something, mm -hmm. you know, and and just give drugs, and you go, well, you know, just stop and think about what's actually happening. I have, I have an example of that. I can't say the exact details because I can't remember the exact details, but I, I sometimes get messages from people in, in other countries, um, and they'll just spam me the. Um, the history and the results and things like that, and then, and then part of that they will also put down all the medications it's on. And yeah. It's like, well, do you, I don't even know if you know what you're treating. Like, yeah. What, what are you actually yeah. treating with all this? Yeah, I know. I know. That's a lot of things there. It's like ten different medications. Some are natural. Some are you know not natural. Yeah. Some are. Yeah. And, and it, like then then there comes Jack. So sometimes I reply back and it's like. What diagnostic test apart from that? Yeah. What, what, do you what do you trick? What do you actually yeah. trick? And yeah. it's like, oh, we haven't done that. What's the next test? It's yeah. Like, yeah. So yeah. I think I think we're um, certainly with with medicine um, is in um, that where errors lie is in not taking the history properly. There's so you know there are so many times where I'll get a vet who describes a case to me and says this happens and all the rest of it, and I think. This seriously doesn't make sense. It doesn't make this can't be right. Mm. You know, it just something's missing here. You've missed something. Mm. You know, missed something in the history. You've missed something in the physical exam. It just doesn't make sense. Mm. Um, but so that history taking, which is where the problem solving approach really is a framework, because it means that you, if what you're guiding. Your guiding principle is I need to define the problems, know what they are, define the ones that need defining and think about what systems involved and how. 
that structures your history taking. So you don't just walk away saying, oh, the dog's vomiting or the dog's got diarrhea or whatever. You, it makes you get enough information so you can say, yeah, I'm happy it's vomiting or, mm-hmm. gee, it's absolutely fine for a week and it just started vomiting today and it's as bright and happy. It's going to be primary GI disease or possibly pancreatitis. So mm-hmm. it's that history taking. And, and if I think of the number of students who have come out of the consult, come back to me and said, yeah, the dog's vomiting, I'm happy it's vomiting, good, that's great. Um, and what's its appetite like? Oh, it's not eating. And I'll say, when did it stop eating? Oh, I don't know. But when it stopped eating, it's hugely important mm-hmm. in how you respond because mm-hmm. if it stopped eating a month ago, mm-hmm. then that's a very different deal than if it's, it's you know, been vomiting for a week and it stopped eating yesterday. Yeah, and that's totally. the reason why the people brought it in. So mm-hmm. it's, it's that recognition that, um, and I suppose one of the things that it tries to help is we're all absolutely prone to taking notice of what we think is the most important problem and forgetting about the stuff that's around it. But the stuff that's around it is often got all the clues about how you assess that. Mm. So, yeah. Some of some of my biggest complaints have also been noticing all the important stuff, but then forgetting about what the owner actually came in for. So you get those cases where they come in for, for a skin problem and then you find the, yeah. find the tumor and you do the surgery and you fix it and you're a hero and then it goes home and it's still itchy and the owner said, but you never exactly. fixed the bloody skin. <laughs> exactly. exactly. <laughs> you know, and one of the things that we say, and I know that um, uh, our uh, head vet at uh, the Beaumont and runs our sort of um, our rotation there, you know, what he will say to the students is, that, that what when you say define the problem, one one way you can interpret that is what is the owner really worried about? Yeah, you know, exactly. Yeah. The um, the sort of advice that comes on the consultation models about you know the the golden three minutes, just letting them talk and just finding that out because it's so and you know but it's tough you know and for ten minute consults over here you know mm. fifteen minutes if you're lucky. Mm. Um, which means that my argument is you've got to be even better at clinical reasoning than specialists who've got an hour. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You, you still, you do practice at the moment a couple of days a week, Jill. Is that right? You work uh, I, do, I do a sort of half a day at our first opinion practice here. I try and do it every two weeks. Mm-hmm. And I do one Saturday a month at a local practice. I used to do every second Monday evening, but it's just impossible. <laughs> so I do a little bit. I do a little bit. Yeah, and are there are there things that still challenge you? Surely by yeah. now you surely you know everything now. <laughs> yeah, well what what, so what, I, what what do you still find challenging about practice, whether it's clinical eyes. or non-clinical? Eyes, I hate eyes. <laughs> you I hate eyes. eyes. <laughs> so eyes always challenge me. Um, I do the programming for London Vet Show, and um, one of the things I say, which isn't entirely true, but is that the way I program it, what, can, what certainly influences my programming is what terrifies me when I'm there on a Saturday morning and something comes in mm-hmm. and I think, oh, or if I had to do it, you know, so, and because I run the CBD unit here and I, you know, see what works and what doesn't and what people want, you know, I'm more and more convinced. In some parts of CBD, I'm not saying all of it, you know, it's not this shouldn't be the only thing that CBD is but there's still an awful lot out there of just really wanting to understand the fundamentals of things. Um, 
also to understand advances for sure. But, um, you know, we've had people come to our course. We run a, um, a course pretty much every year on the exploratory laparotomy and we say, you know, this is the exploratory laparotomy, it's a practical course and it has topics like, um, oh my God, it's a big fat bitch spay or the avenue's full of blood, whatever. So it's really fundamentals of abdominal surgery and it is our most popular surgical course. And we have people come to that who've been in practice for 20 years and learn, you know, better techniques about tying off ovarian pedicles and things like that. So I, I just think when you're in practice, you've got to deal with so many body systems and so many things and specialists lose sight of the fact that they're only dealing with, you know, one thing, you know, and and when you're in practice, you're dealing with, you know, I'll see a wound and I'll go, gosh, is this going to heal? Is this not going to heal? What would what would make it not heal? Um, you know, so that's kind of. Whereas, you know, if I if I see a dog that's got diarrhea mm. or vomiting, it's fine. You know, I'm fine. I, mm. You know, it's not a problem. But mm. the other stuff, yeah. So it's funny you say eyes. Um, so I my career started in general practice because I wanted to be a dairy uh, veterinarian that did smoothies, right? And yeah. I love the yeah. idea of yeah. 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 cattle are just nice to work with, especially yeah. dairy cattle yeah. and the yeah. green hills and so yeah. forth. Yeah. Um, and ended up uh, becoming a small animal practitioner. And uh, I learned a lot of stuff at a certain level. Like uh, I wasn't good at any kind of further, so at managing any sort of advanced presentations of common diseases. Like that's where we just refer, yeah. refer to the place that I actually yeah. work at now. Yeah. And, um, but what I did do those, I tackled a lot of skin, ears and eyes and so forth. And um, my, one of my colleagues who went straight into uh, emergency uh, is, is, is terrified of skin and eyes. Mm, yeah. It's 10 yeah. years out. It's yeah, just yeah, like, yeah. what I do about yeah. skin and eyes? I'm just like, yeah. oh, this is stuff I learned like six months in general yeah, practice, exactly. right? And, yeah. But she would tackle a, a, a GEV. Yeah, without a problem. Yeah, yeah. No, it's so. really, it's really, um, it's interesting. And, you know, I don't, I don't think it matters how long you're in practice. You'll still see stuff that you go, I have never seen this before. Yeah. Like, you know, never seen it before. This is, this is weird. Um, My Achilles heel is, is neurology. Like, if they're vestibular disease, I've got that. Sort yeah. of. <laughs> That's sort of, yeah. You're a little bit wonky and doing intermittent stuff. Okay, now, yeah. now, now, now we have to go back and really kind of like yeah. read some textbooks now. Let's localize the problem. That that's like, oh. But see, you know, see neurology. If you know, that's another example. I mean, if you if you're reasonably comfortable, and you don't have to know the deep deep bits, of it, but if you're reasonably comfortable about what goes wrong, you know, localising your lesion, mm. then you're fine. I mean, mm. I was at um, a meeting in Sweden a couple of weekends ago, and one of um, my colleagues from here, um, one of the neurologists was there as well, and I was doing some stuff on clinical reasoning, and the whole day was more on mind stuff, you know, stress and learning and things like that. And he did, and I've never listened to his lecture, but he, he's got his... Um, his aim is to stop this neurophobia. Yeah. And he just gives this really lovely lecture. And, and Holger Falk, who's the, one of the co-editors of the book, um, he developed a 
structure which she calls the five finger rule, which is it's still defined the problem and, and system and location, but then the five finger rule really helps you in deciding the lesion. And it really makes a whole lot of sense. And I think one of the things about neurology is that you get this feeling that you're supposed to do this amazingly complicated neurological exam, but actually, yeah. do you know what? It's sort of, honestly, you know, what's the proprioception like? Do they have proprioceptive de deficits? You know, mm. is there any lateralization? Um, yeah, you can do a bit of reflexes. I can never remember the cranial nerves, but you know, if I saw that there was something mm. different, I'd go and look it up. Yeah. And then it goes, okay, well, once I know where it is, then where, is it painful? Is it progressing? Is it lateralizing? Um, is it is it resolving? It kind of really helps you narrow it down. Oh, he, I he should go his which is great. He sort of and it's very specifically he says. Look, there's a word for it. anyway, fear of fear of neurology. It's a well-known thing, and there's lots of papers oh. on it in the human nutrition. Well, I think I got that. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah it's, it's a especially I, especially late at night, and you get a complicated neuros case, and you just go, oh. Yeah. <laughs> no, no. The feeling that you have to do the 14 steps of a neurological exam. I yeah. can never remember them. Apart no, exactly. from like <laughs> yeah. talked about was it is exactly. it. You know, is, is it central? Is it peripheral? Is it is it is it proprioceptive? Is it lateralizing? It's like, oh, it's kind of what I do. You know, it's kind of where you get. And, yeah. and the other stuff, I think, where we get terrified is all those cranial nerve things. And what happens if this is what I find? What happens if I put a pin here and it doesn't react? Which one's that? Is that trigeminal? You know, yeah, yeah. Oh, facials when they droop. Okay, <laughs> blah blah blah, and then the crossing over. Yeah. So therefore, it's on the anyway. Yeah, but um. Yes. I think it's very, very valuable if we, um, if we think about who, well, Gerardo deals a lot with, with, with younger, younger, younger vets or vet students and the people we interviewed before this, a major concern is that feeling of, oh, I'll never know everything. I never, I, I don't know enough. And then to hear you say that there's stuff that scares you, uh, and it, it's not, it's, I think it's a nice message to say to people. It is. It is always stuff that's going to scare you, and even if, even if you do medicine, you won't know everything. Uh, but it's not I, as. I try to put it in the context that you know one of the things I say about the problem-solving approach that we teach is that I mean left and right brain stuff has kind of been discredited sort of, but I still think you've got an emotional side of your brain mm. which can be really activated when you're stressed, mm. even if you're not normally an emotional top lesson. So you're really activating when you're stressed because you're stressed about what you're doing, you're stressed about the client, the client's stressed. You know, there's a whole lot of emotion flowing in that difficult consultation for whatever reason it is. And if you have a structure um, that you can say, just grab onto that ladder that pulls you into your problem solving part of your brain, that takes you away from that emotion. And you go, okay, well, Right, and one of the, I show a slide, I didn't show them Sunday, but there's a slide I show the students in the lectures, and it's a really lovely, I need to find out where it's from, it's a, it's a staircase somewhere here in the UK, at a university, and then it's got a, a quote, which is from Martin Luther King, saying, it doesn't matter if you can't see the end as long as you take the first step, and it's got it on the staircase. Mm -hmm. And for me, being able to say, okay, right, let's just, Define the problem. Let's, what do we got? You know, have we got any evidences? Let's just make sure we've got our problem list. And grabbing onto that ladder to me is a an analogy for I'm in this soup of stress. Mm -hmm. I can grab onto this and kind of pull myself out. And then at the same time, 
it helps you communicate with the client so that you're a bit clear about, you know, you know the, the sort of the consultation skills that, you know, you get taught about signposting. Your signposting, you say, right, well, I'm just going to, and it just, mm. I think, helps with that. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, it's kind of the, as you said, yeah, it's a ladder. It's like it's a, a recenter, a recenter yeah. to, to to then um, you know, sort of, sort of solidify it. Not even solidify your thoughts, your thoughts, because as you go through that ladder, um, and as you talk and as you kind of reason, then things start to solidify. But yeah, yeah it's just it's. And a then you know point. when you've got to go and look something up, and mm-hmm. you know, I mean, as I said, I Google all the time. So I saw a dog on Saturday, and and it's a little cute little six-month-old Maltese that has had two acute episodes of right falling lameness. I hate lameness too. So I hate, that's, um, I hate Two acute episodes of really quite marked right falling lameness that really seem to be related to the shoulder. Recovered from one completely, both in the snow. Snow was this week. And I was thinking, do you know, if you were a Labrador, um, you know, I'd be worried about OCD or something like that. So then I Googled, you know, what breeds get OCD? I don't know. And, of course, for me, big breeds come up, so I'm going, well, it's a Maltese. It probably isn't. But I still think if it happens again, either this dog's just mm. been really unlucky and she's crazy and running around with her, with her litter mate. But, um, you know, there's that, you, just can't, you just can't model. Mm. You know, particularly what – I've never been very good at what breeds get what and because partly I've untra- not untrained myself about it because – because that can that can really that can trap you in a pattern. So I, yeah. I've got too far the other way actually. So I'm really bad mm. at knowing. Oh, um, I mean something like that. Oh, yeah, it's a case and okay. Mm. So it's likely to have hyperparathyroidism or something, something like that. But um, but I try to train myself not to do that. Mm. But sometimes that lets me down because I don't think, oh, I don't know, is that happening this breed? I don't know. I get like that um, um, when like older dogs come through, like. 12, 13 year old dogs come through and they've had a collapse episode at home and they and they they come through and they and and for me it's almost like oh hemabdomen, you know, like it's kind of like it's a pattern that I've seen yeah. so many times clinician. Yeah. I mean hemabdomens you see, but it's kind of like add hemabdomen to a differential list, but consider, yeah. you know, these yeah. other things. It's like you can use sometimes pattern matching to, to, yeah. to help shortcut, but it's not, it's it's as you said, yeah, it's not to get trapped down that this is what it is, yeah. it's something else, because yeah. otherwise as you said before, you get stuck. It's not that when you go next, you haven't yeah. thought about anything else. Yeah. Mm. So you either you get stuck and it's not that, and you haven't thought about anything else, or you keep pursuing that, mm. which can be to the detriment. And the example we talked about yesterday mm. was about you know the dog. It's really the, in the you know entire female dog. It's unwell. Blah 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 blah. Of course, you've got a pio at the top of the list. But if you go, oh, it's a pio and don't think about anything else. And when you can't find that pile when you're mm. imaging, then either you'll start going, what is that? Mm. Or you're sometimes you, you take it too far and it goes to surgery and mm. there's still no pile there. So so yeah, it's a it's kind of a um, I think it's a I think it's a safety net. And it was interesting because after that talk Yesterday, one of one of our students, I was talking to him about you know his experience on EMS. He said, "Oh, really worked for me because I saw this dog, and it presented and it was vomiting and had abdominal pain and all the rest of it. And snap PLI was probably not that means anything, but um, <laughs> well, anyway, we, so we don't stop that anymore. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Waste of time. Um, but you know, so judgment was pancreatitis. 
um, went and did a scan, but the pancreas was normal. And, and um, the student said, the vet was really stumped and said, but I'm sure it's pancreatitis. And the student said, so I use a problem solving framework and said, well, you know, something's going on, it's vomiting, so it's either primary or secondary GI disease, so let's make sure that the guts look okay and, and some other organs. But he said the thinking was there, whereas the vet was kind of, oh, my God, mm. which is also a knowledge thing. Not all dogs with pancreatitis will have abnormal ultrasound mm. findings. So, um, yeah, it's just... Um, so would it be fair to say with, with pattern recognition, because as Gerardo says, it's, it's handy because it can save you time, but instead of pattern recognizing and saying, okay, I need to go and prove that it's that, to rather change your frame of mind, and I'm saying this for myself now to say, well, the first thing I need to go and rule out is that. So you see your, see, your, see your classic hemabdomen and you go, okay, the first thing I need to go and rule out, not prove, disprove, yeah. is yeah. an hemabdomen. And then you scan and you go, oh, yes, it is. Okay. Or if it's not, then you go, okay, well. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So. I think that's a good way. I mean, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not hugely fond of the rule out system, mm -hmm. which means you have 10 different, you rule them out. But absolutely, you that difference between I've got the collapsed dog and that's a German Shepherd yep, and yep. it's pale. So therefore, of course, I've got a collapsed dog got palmucous membranes, it's anemia or poor perfusion. Mm. If it's anemia, bleeding or hemolyzing, um, it's a German shepherd. My first thing is that it's bleeding, it's a hemoabdomen, but I've actually just said it's hemolyzing or bleeding. So if I can't find that bleeding, and immediately, I immediately go, is it hemolyzing? And I've got a case I use, and all my cases are real, and they've all been seen in general practice, like I said, but I've got a case of a dog who presents collapsed and um, there's palmucous membranes, blah, 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 and it's a Labrador, I think it's a Labrador, I changed the breed, but I think originally it was a Labrador. And, um, what was it, a Rockwell? Anyway, it doesn't matter, one of those breeds. And, and it turns out to have Evans syndrome, so it turns out to have hemolytic anemia and thrombocytopenia. Mm -hmm. And it has some, it presents with a bit of melina. But when I do that, when I do that case using turning point, you know, um, anonymous voting, mm -hmm. Quite, quite understandably, there are people who will say, my first thought was that it had whatever. And then when you say to those people, fine, but how are you going to explain the Molina? They go, mm, I don't know about that. But I've had some people, I've had, I remember one person in one of the courses going, but I saw a dog like that and it had a hemoglobin. I go, I know, of course you did. But this dog didn't. I promise you it didn't. And it's, they'll fight you and the dog, and, there's, and then I've got another dog that I use, um, again, real one which um, has PUPD and is unwell and it's an unneeded female um, and it's been unwell for a few 10 days or so and it's got a bit of diarrhea and things like that. Anyway, so of course, people are like, you know, is it, is it pie fine? But I have people get really upset with me and say, but that dog could have a pie And I go, yes, but it didn't, you know. I don't mind. I don't mind that what you say. I, I need to make sure this dog doesn't have a pile, of course. Mm. You know, it's like hyperadrenalism. You know, even at the merest whiff of a possibility, you want to rule it out because if mm. you miss it, you mm. But you have to have something to back you up because otherwise you then, you have the potential to, to take it too far. Mm. How are we going for, for time, Jill? Oh, we, we, I, don't want, we, I, I, could, I could talk to you all day. Oh, we're getting, we're sort of getting... Can I ask about books? Jill, you, you, you mentioned earlier Nelson and Ettinger's and, um, and then of course your, your books. Um, are there 
have you got any books that you recommend and they don't have to be clinical even if it's a if it's a, another book that that really helps you or that you that you recommend people read but i, I, I but i would like your opinion on the best clinical books as well <laughs> I, I personally, from a medicine point of view so i'm just doing medicine so yeah. i always have the latest edition of bettinger and of nelson and kuto so um you know, spinal medicine. And I like Nelson and Kuto because it, um, I just like the way it's laid out. I find it easy to find things. I quite like narrative. But I like Ettinger because if I want to read up about a disease, so I tend to, with Ettinger, use it and go, I now need to read about X disease just to see if things fit or whatever. Mm. Um, Ettinger's not as strong on pathophysics as it used to be, which mm. is a bit of a pity. Yeah. Um, mind you, I haven't read it cover to cover, but um, so that from from it's it's interesting. I mean, there's sort of books out there. I read a book called Street Lights and Shadows. I think that's what it's called, mm -hmm. and it was about how decision people make decisions, and you know, there's that fast and slow thinking book, which I have to confess I haven't read. Um, and I, there's things about that that I quite like, but I have to I have a terrible confession to make in that. I was asked to write a chapter in um, there's a book that was published last year in 2017, I can't remember, um, on veterinary medical education ed edited by a friend of mine, Jenny Hodgson, and a colleague of hers um, in the States. And she asked me to write a chapter on clinical reasoning or teaching clinical reasoning. And I said, yep, I thought I'd better do this. And then I thought, hmm, I'd better read the literature because I'd never read it. <laughs> you know, I'd never never been informed by the literature what what i do or what we do and so and i've always been i haven't really liked the educational literature i can't really understand some of it mm. you just i find it i find it quite opaque and difficult to get into so i so i thought right well i better now i really need to i can't just say stuff i've got to reference it and what was what was really interesting was that i, I think it was a matter of time but everything I read about just supported what we were doing. Mm. But if I'd read that literature 10 years ago, it probably wouldn't have. Like, it's really evolved to recognising, mm. you know, dual processing and a combination of pattern recognition, all that sort of stuff. And there's arguments about, you know, the fast and the slow thinking and what's more accurate. But I don't think that's relevant. So I found it quite good that I was able to find, maybe it's confirmation bias, mm. able to find, um, studies that sort of supported what we do or reasons why what we do because there really isn't anything out there else that tells you how to analytically reason and just talk about analytical reasoning and say that's what clinicians do when pattern recognition doesn't work for them or they're faced with something unusual you know there's stuff about how doctors will be talking when they're seeing a common case and as soon as they see something that's not common, they stop talking because they think they're, you know, they're talking to their students, they're thinking more analytically. Mm. So the thing that, to me, we've been able to do is to just provide a bit of a structure about how to analytically reason because before that, all it really was was identify the problems and think about every single differential mm. that goes with that problem and that just doesn't work. Well, the differentials bombing are quite fun, hey? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So... Um, so, yeah, so from a book point of view, um, yeah, 
I love Caitlin Moran, but that's that's all about feminism, not about um, political reasoning. <laughs> doesn't have to be well, clinical. Any any books doesn't yeah. no, it doesn't I have to be clinical. I'm a collection of her, her works and things. Mm. Yeah, I've got a girl crush on her. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, who was that? I missed the name. Caitlin Moran. Caitlin. She's a writer. Okay. Okay. Cool. She wrote a book called How to Build a Girl, How to Be a Woman, and she writes in the Saturday Times. Um, a column, and she's just incredibly funny, but really insightful about you know gender issues and stuff. I just I just really like it because she doesn't take herself too seriously, but she is really serious. But she's very very funny. Well, it's, it's, like it's awesome you share that because ninety percent of the people who listen to this. You know, <laughs> <so then. laughs> I just I just find it's really good. Caitlin Moran. Okay, cool. Thank you for that one. All right, Gerardo. Anything else? One, I got one last question. Hopefully, uh, and then then we can ask those other questions, the shorter ones. But I, I always get asked: Should students go spend some time in practice? Should they go straight into what they choose to do, based on what they've you know, seen and and, and love, um, or should they go to a rotating internship? Like, yep. Okay. So, um, and I, you know, I did a, I did an internship out of uni. Um, which I think in the circumstances was fine because Sydney at that time was a mixture of general and law practice. So you saw lots of first printing stuff. Mm -hmm. And I also at the same time worked in practice. But I would strongly recommend that nobody goes straight into an internship. We won't out, well, that's probably unfair. So here we now will not take our small animal interns straight up out of vet school. They have to be up for two or three years. Um, the equine and the farm ones. And I think it depends because I think in equine and farm, my sense is, and I'm not really experienced, my sense is that the internships are seen as more of a kind of here's another year to get you structured. And if the internships were like that, but I just think to get the most out of an internship, what you, what I always say is, you want to get some of that just basic stuff under control. You want to be able to get a vein. You want to be able to put in a catheter. You want to be able to You want to be able to. You know how to talk to clients. You know, just get that stuff. And then, while you're doing your internship, you've got the more capacity to learn the stuff that you're there for your internship. Now, our, our interns here kind of run our after hours service, so it is important that they have some smarts on board and some confidence about being able to do that. Um, but even so, I think, and then I also think longer term that that not having been in general practice ever makes you not as good a specialist because it makes you not aware of the challenges that you face in general practice. And I think it makes you, you might be a brilliant specialist and you might, you know, your experience in small animal practice um, and in general practice then really informs a better understanding of what everyone's out there facing. And I think one of the things where specialists can become um, a bit arrogant or whatever is to, oh, you know, how did this happen? How did it get to be like that? Well, I know enough now that by the time the animal gets to the specialist, all sorts of things change. Yes, sometimes there's been, it's gone terribly wrong, but often things have really changed. Something has become a lot more obvious. You know, um, the clients behave very differently with the specialist than they did with the mm. with the general practitioner. They allow they come with a different mindset. Mm. You know, there's a whole lot of things. So I think having that experience in general practice, and from the point of view of 
if if I'm looking at for people who are going to either teach our students or lecture the general practitioners, I want them to understand those challenges. Mm. So when I program on the vet show, you know, I say to the lecturers, you might be top of your field, but I don't want to hear about that. I don't want you to tell me what cool stuff you do because that's not really of interest. What I want is you to be able to use your experience and your knowledge um, to help practitioners do the very best job they can do in the practice. And that doesn't mean just referring to you. Mm -hmm. So my most challenging lecturers at London Vet Show have been those who stood up and said, so beyond this tiny bit, it's all really complicated, you should refer to me. Mm -hmm. And then it, that's not very helpful. No, no, you just can't do any of the stuff that I actually talked exactly. about. Yeah. Exactly. That's the best answer I've heard to that question. It is, and, it's, and it's, it's just like Jill's lectures always are. It's decisive. You listen, you listen to what she says. And <laughs> that's what I said at the beginning. And then you walk out of that lecture, and you know exactly what you need to do. Um, Jill, we normally wrap up with, uh, with, the, one, with the one question. Um, so you're at a congress, and you've got all the world's veterinary new graduates in a room, and you've got two to three minutes to give them one bit of advice. What would you tell them? Oh, wow. <laughs> Should have warned you about this one. <laughs> well, it's, it's, what I, it's probably what I always put. So for our, for our yearbook here, you know, in the final years, I just go define, refine, define the problem. Mm. Honestly, honestly, truly, I know, I know it's an, if you define a problem, so my, the analogy that I give is that if, if um, someone rings you up, your friend rings you up or your partner rings you up or whatever, and they're crying on the end of the phone, crying, 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 please help me. Mm. The first thing you ask is, what's the problem? So if you can define the problem, everything, for, even if you don't even go into defining the system and things, is to define the problem. Okay. Listen and define the problem would be, so if I had two to three minutes, I'd say listen, 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 active listening. Yep. And as the guide to that, what you're aiming to do is to, to, as the start, is to define the problem, be it the animal's problem or the client's problem or both. It's actually really good business advice too. The amount of times where you're tackling some kind of fire and you have this idea of actually what the problem is, but it's, it's something completely different. Yeah. Um, yeah. I like that. That was really good. That's great. That's a great spot to end. Right. Thank, oh. thank you so much, Jill. I'm, I'm honoured. That was really lovely. Um, that, I think that's going to be very, very useful for a lot of people. Um, thank you so much, Dorado. Thanks for organising. Thank, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Okay. Thank you again to Jill. What a legend. Now let's see what we what we can apply. I have to say, and this is just a thought that struck a chord with me personally. But I like what Jill said about not doing something because it seems too hard. And that maybe that means that you don't really want to do it. For a very long time, I wrestled with the idea of specializing because it seemed like the sensible next step in my career. But I always had a hundred excuses why it's not a good time to do it. And to be honest, it just seemed too hard. And to hear Jill say that just brought home to me what I'd probably realized a long time ago. I clearly don't really want to specialize. Otherwise, I would have started a long time ago. And it's actually quite a release to say that. You know, I don't really want to do that thing. I can let go of that idea. Is there anything that you're struggling with that maybe you just don't want to do? Jill talks about defining the problem and how to do this. You need to ask 
and then you need to listen, then listen and listen. But many of us don't know how to actively, actively listen. So here's a quick guide to active listening. In case you haven't heard this elsewhere, there are at least five kinds of listening when we talk about active conscious listening. So the first, listening to disagree. This involves identifying words, phrases, and ideas that you use to disagree with the other person you're listening to. Clearly not helpful. Listen to respond or record. This seems on the surface to be a very helpful form of listening. However, it diverts our attention to our own thoughts, experiences, and stored memories. Finding a helpful question or suggestion may seem appropriate, but what often happens is that the client's thinking regresses as they talk, making our intended intervention obsolete before it is even voiced. So also note that taking notes as the clients speak is also highly distracting for both you and the client. Listening to understand, now we're getting there. Here you focus on intent. What is the person trying to say and why? What overt and hidden implications are there? Fourth, we have listening to help the other person understand. This goes a step further in that it shifts your attention from yourself to the client. Here, we help the client become more aware of their own thinking processes and the meaning that they attach to the words and phrases, including the emotional responses that are affecting their behaviors and decisions. Finally, listening without intent. This aims to simply to support the other person in the conversation that they need or want to have with themselves with minimal intervention. This is not necessarily appropriate in a clinical or consult setting, but it's still a good goal to aim for with relationships with your colleagues or in some areas of your personal life. So here's what we need to do for the next week. When you are in a conversation, be aware of how you are listening. Where do you fall between levels of listening from one to five? and then try to aim for the next level up. And that's it for this episode. If you liked it, we'd like a five-star review on the iTunes store. Or if there's something else you'd like us to talk about, get in touch. Hit us up on Instagram or click on the link on the episode to find out how to get in touch. Now, get out there and go smash it. Smash it.